I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and I'm excited to, after all the election stuff we've done, be back talking about whiskey. And I'm delighted to have on as a guest a man whose name you might not know, but whose whiskeys you've probably drunk at some stage. Welcome to the podcast, Steve Lip. Thank you very much, Dan. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. So let's... Let's start with, there's so much we can talk about whiskey-wise. Actually, let's talk about something to do with what's happening at the moment. Obviously, you know, the world is complicated at the moment, but the world of sales of alcohol, in particular, particularly whiskey, I guess it's never been, in that narrow sense, so good. Yeah, we feel very fortunate, Dan, that uh, the booze business has proven to be you know, pandemic proof, you know, people are drinking in good times and drinking even more in bad times. So we feel fortunate to be in the, the Scotch whiskey business and the booze business in general. So I think everybody's at home, you know, they're not able to go to bars and restaurants, so everybody's picking up bottles of whiskey at the supermarket. So we feel very fortunate. And obviously, on a personal level, I've I've been lucky enough to visit you in your house, and you have the most impressive personal whiskey collection I think I've ever seen. So, are you you're not short of whiskey? Obviously, are you drinking more or less than usual? I think I'm drinking less. <laughs> oh, really? That's, that's very commendable. Um, yeah, I'm surrounded, as you can see, I'm surrounded by a lot of whiskeys I've been collecting for. Probably 30 years, so I'm a master collection, quite a collection. I tend to forget what I have, so a lot of doubles. But it is a working collection, Dan, so if the occasion's right, I will open even some of the, the rarer ones. You haven't found yourself sort of stuck at home, watching the news, getting depressed, and then inadvertently opening the Balvenie 50, which you were meant to be <laughs> saving for your retirement. Well, I've got a black Bomer. I was born in 1964, so I've got a black Bomer 1964, which must be worth a fair bit by now. But uh, if the occasion's right, I would open that one. So make sure you're here when that happens, Dan. <laughs> I certainly will. <laughs> so in terms of your, your whiskey empire, and I think empire is probably the right word. So Alexander Murray is one of the names people will know, but also actually, if anyone goes to Costco, and obviously in America, that's nearly everybody, their whiskey is your whiskey. So for people who don't understand how this all works, can you explain at least the principle of sort of independent bottling and sourcing? So basically, you know, hundreds of years ago, 
people were drinking blended scotch. Single malt was seen as a bit rough for the palate. So they would blend uh, single malts with single grain whiskey. So it was much lighter, a much easy drinking whiskey. And it was sort of independent bottlers who were responsible for the growth of single malts. They would, they would be sort of licensed grocers in Scotland and the distilleries would sell them single cast to your local licensed grocer like Gordon McPhail. There's an old ruling in the Scotch whiskey industry where an independent bottler, they're allowed to put their brand name like Alexander Murray, Gordon McPhail, and then you're allowed to list the distillery name. So that was sort of the, the birth of independent bottlings. So that was, it's a small, smaller niche market. You know, if you've got Drink McAllen, you're probably used to getting a 10, 12, 15, 18, 21 year old, 25 year old. The beauty about independent bottlers are that we find unique uh, years that may not be available for the distillery bottlings. And there's a lot of single malt distilleries in Scotland that don't even have their own release, you know, the majority of them going to Chevis Regal blends or Johnny Walker blends. So independent bottlers sort of can bring you on a journey across some of Scotland's lesser known distilleries and this ages. So I've been lucky enough to drink actually one night at your house in one go, quite a lot of different Alexander Murray's, but also I've been, you know, I've, I've drunk a few of them separately. And well, I, I often give them to as gifts to people and people who don't know what they're doing think, hold on a minute, why have you given me Alexander Murray rather than, you know, Balvenie or Glenfiddich? But the people who know what they're doing actually find these, are, are pleased that they've got something, as you say, a little bit different. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's somebody who drinks Glen Morangi, 12-year-old, and he's, you know, he's a hard, hard and fast Glen Morangi lover. It's sometimes difficult to change those guys who are super brand loyal, but I think if you're more adventurous or keen to learn about some of the unique distilleries on the go, then independent boilings, you know, are a great journey. And obviously they go they go deep and old. So and actually at your house, we did a journey from, I think, either 9 or 12 all the way up to, I think, maybe 51, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I managed to find, I was born in 64, so I managed to find a cask from 1964. So this is one of my favorites, Alexander Murray Bottlings from 1964. And, uh, you know, you were asking about Costco. I, you know, I came to the U.S. and uh, I got into the, if I go back a little bit in the history of, of how I got started. Um, you know, I grew up in the northeast of Scotland, uh, a small town called Turf. And uh, my report card said could do better. So at 18, you know, Aberdeen, the northeast of Scotland, they have a lot of oil. So a lot of oil rigs. So at 18, I decided uh, not to go to college or university. I decided to find my fame and fortune on the oil rigs. So I set off to the oil rigs at 18. And uh, I was working on the drill floor and I was getting paid more than a, you know, a doctor, 
out of five years in university. So that's where my sort of adventure started in the oil rigs. And then uh, I had a couple of close calls. They, uh, they stationed me on the Magnus oil rig. It was the furthest North Sea oil rig. And uh, took three hours on a Chinook helicopter, you know, those military helicopters. Yeah. So I was on my fifth trip and we were on the way home and a gearbox failure and it ditched in the, the North Sea. So we all had to bail out and pull our life jackets. But thankfully, everybody survived. Wow. So how, then, long were you, how long were you stranded in the sea for? Like three hours bobbing around. Wow. And no, not in sight of either land or the platform? No. And we all had to be picked up by a rescue boat three three hours later. So wow, quite exciting at 18. But, uh, and then five years later, I was working on the Piper Alpha. I'm sure you remember that. Mm. I'd been on there a year, two weeks on, two weeks off. And I was on my two weeks at home when there was a gas leak and that blew up and killed, you know, 170 people. So it was at that stage I decided it was time for a career change. Yeah, two near-death experiences is normally <laughs> enough to get people to relook at these things. So my uh, journey into the Scotch whiskey industry, my sister's husband, his name was Ewan Shand. Uh, he grew up at Glendronach Distillery. His father was distillery manager at Glendronach Distillery. So Ewan was an accountant to trade, and he had three successful businesses, but he always wanted to get back into whiskey. So I took my oil savings, and he sold his three companies, and uh, we started the Benihi Scotch Whiskey Company. And Benihi was a local sort of hill in Aberdeenshire, sort of a landmark, and there used to be a, an old Benihi distillery fell into ruin. So we restored the name and launched a Benihi vatted malt, which is now a blended malt. So that was about... Uh, 20 years ago so that was my journey into the Scotch whiskey business and the name Alexander Murray that's your uncle I spent 10 years with you and Shan and then I was looking to go on my own and I moved to California so Alexander Murray he was my great uncle and uh, as a kid growing up I used to work in his farm he was quite a character you know even though he's a farmer he always wore a sort of tweed jacket and a cravat and he would let me drive his tractor and he had an old he had an old jeep he would let me drive and he had a silver hip flask and he would give me a, a swig of whiskey and tell me not to tell my mother so when I was thinking a good sort of Scottish sounding name you know he came he sprung to mind he was a great character he was a hard-working farmer he grew barley for the whiskey industry. So that's where the Alexander Marinian came from. So when I was at your house once, when we drunk a good selection of Alexander Murray, we ended the evening in your garden, I think with cigars, but with a, a Lagavulin 16, which I know is, I think, one of your favourite whiskies. Yes, and I just happen to have a, a bottle here. Of course you do. It's too bad you can't be here, as we kind of... Are you partial to the smoky? So 
And, and I remember when, when we had this together for the first time, I've never really been one of the smokier, peatier sort of people, but I love the 16 of the Lagavulin. Obviously, a lot of the whiskies, when you get to the older ones, they can get better, but that's my favourite Lagavulin. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so actually, for, for my drink at this end, obviously normally we're meant to drink together, I've got a selection because you have so many whiskies. So I've got, I've got an Alexander Murray, I've got the... Uh, where are we? It's the 12-year-old Highland. There you um, go. Cast strength. Cast strength. And then the one that I'm probably going to open, which is not my usual drink, but I've become rather partial to this, and we're going to talk about this a bit later. I've, I've fallen in love with your banana flavor bourbon. There um, you go. The Howler Head. So I'm actually going to give myself a little Howler Head um, while you drink. So oh, these are like the polar opposites of whiskey. You're drinking a traditional Lagavulin 16, and here yeah. I am drinking banana flavor bourbon but there you go so tell me about the 16 because there's some fun stories around that drink yeah so growing up in scotland you know as an, a young teenager you would go and raid your father's drinks cupboard and you know you didn't really get a taste for whiskey at a young age you know it's it smelled terrible and tasted terrible so we would we as teenagers, we drink more beer or we would have vodka and Coke, you know, the usual easy drinking. So I never really got a taste for single malt until my early 20s when I was working in the oil rigs. And as I mentioned earlier, I actually worked on the drill crew. So we were the, the team of guys who were actually putting all the oil pipe together, drilling for oil. So one of my crew members, his name was Robert Baird. And he was from Kirkubrishire. And uh, he showed up at my house once with a bottle of Lagavulin 16. And he proceeded to tell me how his father, he was a farmer down in Kirkubri. And uh, Kirkubri's on an estuary. And his father was driving over the bridge. And uh, he noticed a fisherman on his boat and his full regalia, oil skins, he fell over the side and was drowning. So my father's, my friend's father quickly stopped his, his jeep, dived in and saved the fisherman's life. So every Christmas for the next 25 years, the fisherman would give my friend's father a case of Lagavulin 16. Amazing. So my, when my friend's father passed away, they cleaned out, this, his mom wanted to sell the farm, so they cleaned out the farmhouse and all that was left was the basement. So they went down to this dusty basement and there was 25 cases of Lagavulin 16 and all the bottles were empty and it's got like a beige label. So on the label, he had like a diary. It was the date, the time and who he had been drinking with. So it was like a 25 year diary. Amazing. So he told me the story and we cracked open the Lagavulin 16 and I just fell in love with the story and the, the real the real smoky flavors of uh, Lagavulin. And if you ever get the chance to go to Isla, it's, uh, it's a beautiful island. And uh, you go visit Lagavulin, Lafroy, Gardbeg, you know, these distilleries have been there for, you know, Lagavulin sips. Celebrated 200 years a couple of years back. So there's a lot of history. 
So that's why it became my favorite dram. Amazing. Because the thing is about whiskey, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, obviously the liquid, as they like to call it, obviously tastes good and people have their favorites and so on, but there's so much more to whiskey than what it actually tastes like. It's everything. It's the shape of the bottle. It's the smell, but it's the, the stories, the history, the narrative, the friendships that really make yeah, whiskey. It's, and it's a wonderful industry to be in. You know, it's got a lot of history. It's a very honorable business to be in. You know, I have, there's still deals done in handshakes, which I love. And if you spend a week in Scotland, you know, driving around all these wonderful distilleries, a lot of history, you know, some of the workers have been at that one distillery for 40, 50 years. So there's like a lot of characters and passion and love for the whiskey. So obviously you now live over here. Here's a question. If you were one day at the beach and you went for a bit of a swim and you got yourself into a bit of trouble and somebody saved your life, what whiskey would you give them for the next 25 years as a thank you? There you go. I would definitely give them the, the Alexander Murray 1964. Yeah. I've still got a few cases of that, so I would I would give them a bottle for the Christmas for the next foreseeable future. Yeah. Is it obviously a lot of people like to do whiskies around celebrations? So you know, people buy their kids a 21-year-old whiskey when they're 21, and you know, if people are have the means to do so. There's people who save up and get a 30-year-old when they're 30 and so on, or at least have somebody buy it for them. Obviously, there's Alexander Murray's that are from all sorts of different years. You get quite a lot of sort of birthday, people wanting year of birth whiskies in your world, don't you? Yeah, we we put the year of distillation, you know, and the age of the whiskey front line and center. And because we have such a varied amount of bottlings over the years. So we definitely, somebody will be buying it for a particular anniversary, a birthday for sure. Yeah. I think you were over in Scotland relatively recently. Yeah, I was back uh, in September. It was my daughter turned 31. So I went over and uh, uh, I went to Tully Barton Distillery. Uh, That's, it's near Glen Eagles, the famous golf course there. So there actually, that's where I bottled my uh, Alexander Murray bottlings and also the Kirkland bottlings for Costco. So they were uh, they were bottling a Kirkland Space Out 23-year-old. So I went to fin- catch the tail end of that. And then I was... Uh, I've always wanted to visit Bladnick Distillery. Have you heard of Bladnick? I actually don't think I have. It's in the lowlands of Scotland. It's Scotland's most southerly distillery. So it's it's got quite an interesting story. Uh, it, it had various owners, uh, including Guinness owned it for a while, and then at Mothball, I think, uh, 1993, and uh, I was contacted four years ago by this Australian surfer. And uh, he had he was kind of a surfer yoga type guy. He got up at 5 a.m. every morning and went surfing. He created the, this yogurt in Australia called 5 a.m. 
And it was one of the most expensive yogurts in the supermarkets in Australia. And nobody, nobody said it would be successful, but he created it uh, on social media. And he eventually sold it for $50 million. Wow. But his father's passion was Scotch whiskey. And, you know, uh, the gentleman's name's uh, David Pryor. So he had a love for whiskey through his father. So he, he always wanted to buy a Scotch whiskey distillery. So he did a lot of research and he actually bought Bladneck four years ago. And he spent about $20 million. He put in four new stills, a visitor center. And uh, he got uh, Nick Savage. He used to be the master blender at McAllen. So he brought him in and they've created this wonderful Bladneck's spirit so it's it's been revived to its full glory mm. and uh, i was able to go down there meet nick savage do a tasting and uh, do a tour of the story so. so will you be buying some casks uh we did we had a alexander murray Blydenek 25 year old before david Pryor bought it which was wonderful mm. uh but definitely uh potentially looking at maybe some nobody in the US there's a lowland private label single malt so potentially looking at that in the future very good obviously you've got a lot of freedom with Alexander Murray how many different versions have you produced over the years oh I probably say there was about 80 releases wow yeah Different distilleries, different vintages. Every region. Every region. Some at 40%, some at 43%, some at cast strength. You know, it's, there's a lot of argument to what's, what you should bottle your single malt at. So most of the private labels, we, you know, the Kirkland scotches we bottle, uh, for a long time they were at 40%. Mm. But they reckon, the connoisseurs reckon that the optimum strength for single malt is 46%. Yeah. So the last few years we've been bottling the Kirkland single malts at 46%. Because obviously, if you don't know what you're doing with whiskey and somebody says, you know, Costco have got a single malt, you're, and you know, this is no disrespect to Costco, but you know, your automatic response will be, well, I bet Costco don't know what they're doing with whiskey. But actually, obviously, the, the single malt you're buying in Costco is a real single malt from a real Scottish distillery. You know, it's not some weird Costco Americanized anything. It's it's real Scotch. It just I think you know historically, if you mention private label spirits, people are used to you know the bottom shelf a plastic PET one seven five for nine ninety nine. So that's the general sort of belief about private label spirits, but I think Costco approached me back in 2007 and they've done a great job with the Kirkland brand. You know, they've, they've managed to create a brand with a consumer that there's a perceived value there. So Costco, for each Kirkland item, Costco has a whole team that studies and develops that skew. So they did exactly the same. You know, they approached me in 07, they had Kirkland wines, Kirkland private label wines. And, you know, the majority of those have high ratings. So 
they have a buying team that's specific to Scotch whiskey. So they would fly to Scotland with me. They would visit the stories. We would hand select the whiskeys. We would do a, you know, a thorough tasting. So they put a lot of time and effort into their Kirkland spirits brands. And, uh, you know, over the years, we've, we've released a number of uh, Kirkland products from 15 years through to a few years back, we did a Kirkland Glenlivet 40-year-old. So the benefit is that, you know, we currently have a Kirkland 22-year-old. It's probably on the shelf at 80 bucks. And if you were buying a distillery bottling of 22-year-old, you know, that would be three, four, five hundred dollars Actually, one of the things I like about Alexander Murray is obviously it's good whiskey. And this is why often I use it as gifts for people, because you can get an older whiskey for a very reasonable price. So I've just bought myself a bottle of 40-year-old. Now, a 40-year-old Balvenie, I think, is in the early thousands. But my 40-year-old I've bought through you guys is it's only three digits rather than four. And I think that's yeah. the thing. You can get exposed to older whiskies in a way you might not be able to with a traditional brand. Yeah, I think... You know, if you're buying a 40-year-old McAllen, there's a lot of McAllen spent, you know, I think $50 million on marketing last year. And, you know, our marketing budget isn't quite that much. So we, you know, we can add the savings on to the consumer. Yeah. So you do these amazing scotches, particularly some of these older ones. And also you're in... You're in the banana-flavored bourbon business. Tell me, tell me how how the head came about, and also what's happening to it. Yeah, this is the the Howler head. We uh, we were contacted by uh, Green River Bourbon Distillery in Kentucky. Uh, it fell. It was. A, I think there are now two hundred and twenty bourbon distilleries in Kentucky. And Green River was the 10th to be registered. So it's a very old historic distillery, but it fell into disrepair. And probably five years ago, a group of investors uh, bought the distillery, revamped it to its former glory, and started producing again. So they contacted Alexander Murray. You know, they had seen us at Costco, uh, and they were looking at potentially using some of their juice for private label. So we flew into Kentucky. We did a tour of the distillery. And at the end, uh, the distillery manager, you know, he was, uh, he had the big beer belly, cowboy boots and a shiny buckle. He, he did the tasting of the bourbons and they were all great. And then at the end, he says, oh, I came up with this flavored bourbon a few years back maybe you guys are interested in it so we kind of looked at each other and uh, he came through and he poured it he says it's a banana flavored bourbon he did not look like the type of gentleman who would be promoting a, a banana flavored bourbon we tasted it and we were blown away and uh, you know flavored whiskeys whether you love them or hate it you know it's, it's not generally something I would be drinking, but uh, flavored whiskeys, the growth in flavored whiskeys is, is huge. So we came back and uh, we're, we have a partnership with Stranger and Stranger in San Francisco. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those guys. They're sort of the leading uh, 
brand development label designers in the world. They're in San Francisco, New York, and London. So uh, we gave, we approached them with this banana flavored bourbon and they were the ones who created the Hallowhead brand. So we launched in October last year. And then about four months ago, five months ago, a friend of mine, he's a boxing promoter. He promotes Tyson Fury, uh, the British boxer. So he had sent Dana White to UFC a few bottles of Hallowhead and uh, Dana White fell in love with it. So that's, you know, we're working on a potential uh, potential partnership with those guys. And uh, yeah, it's because I, I, somebody gave me a little sort of plastic taster one of these few months ago and I had it and you know I actually rather liked it and I got myself a couple of bottles when it's a hundred and something degrees as it is in my part of the world in the summer it's actually quite a nice end of evening whiskey following it on social media and then yeah one day Dana White's waving it around and the next day a million people have liked it or whatever and now it's it seems to be everywhere yeah so it's the you know he was responsible for growing UFC so he's the the ultimate marketeer. So I went to visit him in Vegas two months ago and he's, he's a remarkable character. So he fell in love with Howler and he's hundred percent behind the brand. So we see a huge difference. He actually, he's getting on uh, zoom calls and with retailers and helping promote the brand. So he's been a great partner. Amazing. You must have the broadest selection of, drinks of any whiskey person even broader maybe than the sort of in terms of how extreme you go than a perno ricardo at the agile because you've got you say you, you can pull out a 50 year old you know scotch whiskey and a bottle of banana bourbon and everything in between it's quite a, it's quite impressive yeah i think we have a we have a extensive portfolio we we uh we kind of see ourselves as a mini Diageo, so, you know, we do the, we supply the Kirkland French vodka, the Kirkland Irish whiskey, the Kirkland scotches, and now we're in the the banana Kentucky straight bourbon. But there, you know, a lot of these flavored whiskeys, they're sort of cheap spirit, flavored cheap spirits. So the one thing we did like about Halloween, it's a Kentucky straight bourbon. Mm. flavored with banana. So the quality, we always, uh, we're in the premium spirits business, you know, we like to sort of promote ourselves of being in that sort of category, premium spirits. Now, you also play around with the intersection of whiskey and beer. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, David Walker, he's the part owner of Firestone Walker Brewery. He's an old friend of mine. Us Brits seem to find each other. Yeah. So he's been in California for some time. Firestone Walker Brewery is one uh, medium-sized, best medium-sized brewery in the world numerous times. So I would go visit him and bring a bottle of Alexander Murray. And I was trying to sort of get him excited about single malts. And uh, I discovered that some of his... You know, his IPAs, those dark beers, he, he has a barrel-aged program, so he uses some ex-bourbon casts. So over a few, 
Alexander Murray's late one night, we sort of thought about what would happen if we sent some of those beer barrels that's, you know, their ex-bourbon barrels that's had some of his dark IPAs in them for uh, 12 months, 24 months. What would happen if once he took the beer out, we shipped them back to Scotland and we put some single malt in them. So that's what we did. Uh, He shipped about 60 casks. We, Tully Barn Distillery has quite a, a history. It used to be, it was built on the site of a former brewery and King James the first of Scotland was on his way to his coronation and he stopped in past Tully Barden Brewery and it's the first ever recorded sale of a beer. So we sent David Walker's beer barrels to Tully Barn Distillery and we put some Tully Barn single malt in there. And uh, we created Polly's cask. Polly is actually David Walker's wife. So that's that's where Polly's cask came about. So it was quite interesting. You can definitely, if you get a chance to taste it, you can definitely taste sort of the beer in the back, hints of beer there. So it was quite an interesting collaboration we had. All right, so there's beer, there's bananas. Any Anything else coming up that you're working on? Um, we're working on a, a Kirkland Isley, okay. Isley single malt. They've had Speyside, they've had Highland, they have an age blends. We did a Kirkland 25-year-old age blend. Uh, we've never done a, an Isla single malt, so for Father's Day next year, we're bringing out a Kirkland Isla single malt, so that's going to be interesting. Extraordinary. So you, there's no way you're going back to Scotland anytime soon to live, as it were. Like, you've you've uh, come to California, you've lived the American dream, and you're staying. Yeah, California's been good to me. I love Scotland. I love growing up in Scotland. But I just had enough of those four months of scraping the ice off your windshield. Yeah. Yeah, those, if you get to Scotland and you get a sunny day in the, the summer, you can't find a more beautiful place. But those three, four months of those harsh winters get to you. So, and I played rugby for 20 years. So I got a lot of injuries and surgeries. So I don't feel them in the California sunshine. No, I'm sure you don't. And no, obviously, so so I'm, I'm here to stay in California, but I do love going back to visit. Yeah. Now, see, I know you're obviously a big rugby fan, and I think you're responsible for former Scotland captain and now the King of Scotch, as he calls himself, Chris Cusseter, who's yeah. out here now running a whiskey business and our first guest on this podcast. You, you actually brought him out, didn't you? You used to play with his dad, is that right? His dad was president of... Uh, Gordonian's Rugby Club, who I used to play for. Yeah. And Chris used to be the ball boy. He played for Gordonians and then uh, he went off to play for Scotland. So I think he played for Scotland 77 times and two, three times for the British Lions. So he was a great uh, a great player that came from our club. So he, he came to visit me in California a few times. So he was always sort of thinking what he would do when he retired. So I uh, launched a website, lovescotch.com in 2006 from a 
a liquor store in the valley not far from you, Wine and Liquor Depot. So when he was retired, he was looking at sort of what he would do next. So he bought Wine and Liquor Depot and lovescotch.com. So he's he's definitely grown that business in the last five years. So and obviously there's a strong link between Scotland rugby players. Obviously Chris was on the podcast, but you had Rory, Rory Jackson as well, who he played for Scotland and now works for Glen Turret. And I'm yeah. sure he... There's plenty more Scotch rugby players who'll be working in the in the drinks business, given the power of Scotch. I played with Rory's dad. He played. Rory's dad played for Gordonian, so I played with his dad. So I definitely know his father. So what do you miss about? Obviously, I know you you don't miss the weather, but what do you miss? Are there things you miss about Scotland? Have you found a way of getting Tunnock's tea cakes sent out here to keep you going? <laughs> I miss the humor, you know, the Scottish or the British humor. What else? I think uh, if I got my sister's still in Scotland and my daughter was here for four years, but she's back, her husband's in the oil business. So she's she's back in the Aberdeen. So when I go to visit her, she always makes me mince some tatties and scurly. So I'm sure you have no idea what that is. I've had mince and tatties. I'm not sure what the scurly bit is. Scurly is a stuffing. Okay. It's a scurly is an Aberdeenshire word for stuffing. So okay. <laughs> because it's educational. Do you, you like do you like haggis, Dan? I do like haggis. So we obviously when I was in England, we'd go to Burns events. And then when I joined the diplomatic service, we'd have burn suppers as part of promoting Scotland. And obviously in LA there's a fantastic burn supper that we did every January. I don't know if it's going to happen, obviously, next year because of everything that's gone on. But we did one of the, the hotel in Santa Monica run by Scottish celebrity and former guest on this podcast, Ross King, in conjunction with BAFTA. And all sorts of fantastic Scottish celebrities turned up. So, see, Chris has been to this thing, but we had Sam Hewan's been there, Jerry Butler. And nice. it's a great excuse to eat haggis and no one quite knows how they get haggis into the country due to the restrictions <laughs> but um, no I do I do love a haggis so uh, the California club downtown are you familiar with that I am yep yeah they, they bought a lot of Alexander Murray and they they were doing a burn supper with Alexander Murray whiskey so they asked me to come along just as a guest so I arrived there and uh, the lady in charge said to you, would you mind addressing the haggis? And as you know, that's quite a skill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you need a lot of practice. So I, I'd never done it before, but I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll read. She had it printed out. So I said, I'll read it. So I addressed the haggis and we had a lovely meal. And then at the end, she says, uh, would you like to sing old Lang Syne for us? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I had to... I had the same old man sign for them, so that was quite an evening. Fantastic. I've I've had to do when I was with the government, I think for the burn supper as a sort of honor honoured guest, as it were. I think I did the toast of the lassies two years in a row, but fortunately no haggis addressing or singing for me. Yeah, my, my singing is not good, so very good. Um, actually, so interesting, just one last sort of normal whiskey question. So obviously over the last few months because you do a lot of retail, obviously there's been a lot of whiskey sold, but you do, you did sell into some restaurants and bars and clubs as well in 
Just in California or all over the place? No, we were, you know, the off-trade is liquor store, supermarkets, the on-trade is restaurant and bars. So we were in, you know, we we have wholesalers in uh, probably 30 states in the U.S. So we did have some representation in sort of finer bars and restaurants. Mm. But... Those are those are small volumes compared to the, you know, the supermarket business. Yeah, absolutely. But it is nice to walk into a bar in Chicago and you see Alexander Murray behind the bar in between, you know, McAllen and Glen Mirage. It is a good feeling. Yeah. No, I, I bet it is. Um, so look, last question, Steve. If you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? Well, I think I would have liked to have a Lagavulin in 16 with the late Sean Connery. Mm. Uh, he was a he was a great Scotsman. So I uh, the one reason it brought me to San Francisco was I invested in the Pig and Whistle, the bar restaurant. And Hollywood Boulevard. Have you ever been in there? I have been in there. Yeah, and I for years I was in there practically every night. And the one night I didn't go on, Sean Connery came in and had a whiskey at the bar and I missed him. So uh, I would like to have a Lagavulin in 16 with Sean Connery. Where would it be? One of my favorite hotel restaurants is the Petodri House Hotel in Aberdeenshire. It's a beautiful old hotel. They have a whisk, a snug whiskey bar with a with an open fire. I would like to be there with Sean Connery drinking my Lagavulin 16. Get some stories from him. Yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. Steve Lip, the purveyor of some of the widest selection of whiskeys you'll ever you'll ever see. Thank you and very much for your time. And some uh, banana bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Dan. I love scotch, 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 scotch. Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>